Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us here today um, to receive, Lord. Um, I thank you what Jesus prayed, that we would, we would receive daily bread, God. And I thank you, Lord, that every day we, we awake, there is daily bread from heaven to be nourished, Lord. And so I pray that even these words today will be daily bread. And we do ask you, God, that a spirit of wisdom and revelation would be present, that we might know you and we might know the hope to which you've called us, Lord. And we thank you um, for this time. In Jesus' name, you all said, amen. Um, how many of you alive today? Yeah. It's, I'm still getting used to this, like, preaching to my left side thing. But I think we're going to have to, we're going to have to, re- thank you, Zane. I'm just going to preach directly to you. Um, some years ago, I remember for the first time going to California. I was on a uh, church conference trip, and we got the chance to go through the section of California where where they grow grapes that, to make wine. And, and these vineyards, if you've ever seen pictures of vineyards, it's like in California, it's not mountains like Colorado, but it's these just kind of these hills that are, I mean, they're, it's fairly mountainous, but these hills that just roll and, and you just see vineyards and the valleys and on the, on the sides of the mountains, it's just, just, it's just everywhere. Like, I feel like in Texas, we have no topography, it's just, it's just flat. And so our, our yes, the German knows. Um, it's just flat here. We got big open skies, but our farms look like things, you know, it's, you know, everything's grown on flat terrain. But if you go in California, these vineyards, they're in the valleys, they're on the sides of hills, and they're, they're just they're all over the place, and it's, it's beautiful. And I remember we got the chance to go to this very, um, this very award-winning place where they had produced this wine that it was um, just award-winning around the world. And we got a chance to walk out in the vineyard and see the grapes up close and even like take them and and eat them a lot better than the the little holly berries that I pulled off the prickly bushes as a kid. Um, And we would, you know, how many of you ever ate one of those? Like, I feel like the legend as a kid, the legend as a kid was that they were poisonous and if you ate enough of them, it would kill you. And so maybe, maybe they're poisonous. I didn't die. (laughs) I ate many of them. Um, Anyways, I've, I've lost my point here. But we're in, we're in the vineyards, and we're, we're eating the grapes. And if you look at the, vine, the wineries that are made where, like, you know, Trader Joe's has $2 wine. And you've got to produce a lot of grapes to make wine that cheap. And so the, the cheaper wines, they have, they have vines that produce an enormous amount of fruit. But the, the award-winning ones, they were taking us out there and they were showing that there's multiple places on the vine where grapes would come off. And the things that they would do is they would literally go and not only would they continually prune the vine on a daily basis for anything that was like dead or brown leaves, anything that would be, you know, harmful, but they would go and they would trim um, actually, like they would trim entire grape stems. 
And so like huge clusters of grape, they would just cut them off. And what they would, what they would do is they would focus all of the energy of the plant on one cluster of grapes. And even as they would get to time of harvest, any, any grapes that would come that would turn ripe too early, they'd pull them off and throw them. And any grapes, of course, that were ripe too late, they would pull them off. And all of this pruning that they would do on a daily basis would be to make the most powerfully succulent, beautifully tasting grape that they could possibly make. And it's interesting to me because I, I, saw, I was thinking about this and I had done some research on the idea of pruning in with whether it's, uh, whether it's for landscaping or if it's in a garden. And part of pruning is that we have deadwood. And if you lived on this street in Barbary, we have all these pecan trees. And um, we will, Andrea just got nervous because she thought, I don't think any branches are going to fall on us. But you'll get these little, like, small sticks that will fall because pecan trees actually prune themselves. Their deadwood just kind of, their deadwood just kind of falls off. And I've got a few on my roof that I need to pull off. But pruning is not just about, if you look at, if you study, like, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that pruning is used, but pruning is not always just about removing deadwood. Pruning is often about honing a plant in a certain way that it has the most vibrant, most full amount of life. If you can imagine this, this grape that has this incredible flavor because everything else has been pruned to produce this, this amazing juiciness. And at the, at the beginning of quarantine, oh my goodness, it feels like a million lifetimes ago. At the beginning of quarantine, back in March, I remember the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And, and I remember people were like, man, I, you know, when are we going to get back to normal? When do we get back to normal? And I felt like the Lord was speaking to me that he wasn't looking for, and I think we heard a lot of people say this, he wasn't looking for a return to normal, but I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and to many others that God was going to be pruning aspects of our life and aspects of our faith. And one of the things that we need to remember is pruning is not just removing things that are dead, it's honing the plant so that it can have the fullest potential of vibrancy that it, that it can possibly have. I mean, with me. And I think one of the specific things that I, I think I've said this a couple times in a sermon, I know I've said this a hundred times to different friends and pastors especially, but one of the things I felt specifically that, that God was doing was removing in the church an idolatry of excitement, an idolatry of excitement. Now, I think this manifests in lots and lots of different ways. As a, as a pastor, one of the things that you feel this impending per, permanent pressure of is to try to find some sort of new, fresh thing that you're going to do. Try to find some new idea, some new series, no, some new way of doing things to keep excitement in the church. And one of the things that I haven't been doing it for 20 years, but since I've gotten a little bit of time of doing this, I, I've seen is that this living off of excitement, it kind of has a short-lived, 
it it you know it die and and the longer you keep doing it it's like a drug it like it literally lasts for a little longer and a little little shorter a little shorter till till at some point you're just basically you know entertaining people i mean know what i'm talking about and i feel like in the charismatic and if you didn't grow up charismatic maybe you you won't get this but we had our own ways of idolizing and excitement I remember growing up in a church that could have a six-hour service. And if you didn't have some knockdown, drag-out, crazy things, you know, somebody bouncing off the walls, like, you didn't have church. Like, it was, it was as if, like, you know, you missed something. And I think, though, that part of that has, has lingered with us. How many of you have ever been in a prayer time or you've been in a church service and it didn't just ha- it just didn't have enough zing and you left feeling like oh my gosh like I'm, i must be missing something we're missing something what are we doing wrong how many of you have done this like oh my gosh like yesterday it was just so saucy and today there's no zing and like and i think that we have we played this game with god where we, you know, where we've idolized excitement. Now, how many remember going through the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book a couple of years ago? I remember the, the first thing, I love Pete, Pete Scazzaro's work, but the first thing that struck me, I think I saw it four or five years ago, I don't know how long it was, the first thing that struck me was the title. I thought to myself, well, if there's an emotionally healthy spirituality, then that kind of connotates that there's an unhealthy spirituality. You know what I'm talking about? And I think that a lot of what God has been doing is is ridding us of the parts of our faith and our spirituality that are un, that are unhealthy for our lives. Now, when Andrea and I we shared this testimony, but when we first got married, we were that that sweet, perfect church couple that, you know, we didn't date any other person, either of us. We, you know, like, I don't, like, I, I think, like, I had a few junior high kisses that were super scandalous, and I was Andrea, you know, Andrea's first kiss, and neither of us had ever been on any other date together. And I love to tell the story of going to Cheesecake Factory for the first time because, Andrew was so nervous, she ate less than half her plate. And like I was like, you going to finish that? And she's like, no. And I just went to work, finished both of our you know, plates. And we, w- we had decided we were going to wait to kiss. That was our thing. And so we sat there outside just holding each other side by side, like the dorkiest church couple thing you could possibly do. And but one of the things that happened is we dated for five years, but you know before we got married, and one of the things that was, you know, that we didn't we didn't really think about is that like there's a first there's a first couple of years where like I remember like laying in bed at night, and we would my my dad tells a story about how every we had these wireless phones back when we had house phones. And all of the phones, like we'd have five or six of them, would be dead underneath my bed because I would fall asleep at night. I would say, no, you hang up the phone. And we would, I'd fall asleep at night talking to Andrea. And there was a, there's a lot of passion. And, and 
but one of the things that that because of our relationship is when we came into marriage, we didn't have that same passion that you have when you first meet in those first couple years of just incredible romance and people tell us their honeymoon stories and I'm like we didn't we didn't even have that sort of passion in our physical intimacy in our first few years of marriage and I remember like God um, at some point halfway through our marriage God really restored a vibrancy in that part of our life and our passion but but the beautiful thing that God did is that our marriage was not based purely on passion or excitement. And how many of you have a relationship that's only based on passion? That's a very shallow relationship. And I, uh, I think that there are some dangers, and I think this is one of the things that God has been pruning in our personal spiritual lives, and I can say particularly for the charismatic churches that I've been a part of, I think one of, God has been pruning an idolatry of everything being based on our excitement or our passion. And I believe in passion. I believe in worshiping the Lord with passion, pursuing Him with passion, but it's not based on our passion. Are you with me? And I want to just tell you a couple of dangers, and I'm going to move on from this, a couple of dangers of making our, our spirituality entirely based on passion. Um, one of the things... That, you, that happens, and I've just noticed this, I, I don't know how else to say, I just noticed this in being around people, is that you have a very, you have this very neurotic view of yourself and of God even. It's like, you know, one day it's like, you know, fire from heaven, and then the next day it's like, oh, I just, you know, I can't pray, I can't do, you know, there's this enormous roller coaster of Christianity when we base our lives purely on our spirituality purely on passion. I like I think I was thinking about it and a term that I think of is manic spirituality. It's like we go through seasons of just dullness and then we go through seasons of just like over like I'm gonna pray seventy two hours a day. That's not even possible, but you get the point. Um the, the next thing that I think is a danger of living based purely on passion is that we often live, how many of you, you can relate to this, we often live entirely in the future, what God hasn't done yet, what He will do, and not what He is doing. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Like, there's this, like, you know, fervor to find the whatever it is that God is going to do, and we can miss out on what He's doing. And so this morning, I want to talk about, and I'm, I'm not going to even hide it, I want to talk about what I believe to be the antidote of, of and passion and zeal and fervor should be absolutely a part of our relationship with God, but it cannot be the sole foundation. And I want to talk about one thing that I believe to be the antidote for this, and I'm going, which is thankfulness. I'm just telling you right now, I don't, no, no hidden thing, but I want to read a scripture that we've read before, before we... Um, before we jump into this, and let me let me just give this kind of final statement before I move on. Is that I I think that the pruning of this season is that God is interested in sustainability in people. God is really interested in sustaining faithfulness in His people, and He is removing the things that will not sustain, and He is He is honing and focusing on the things that will sustain. 
And so God, everybody just say, God wants me to sustain. All right. So that's, that's the word, sustainability. I think that's a real key, key word for this season. So I'm going to read to you from Philippians 4, 6-7. I'm going to be brief. My notes are, there's not like 100 pages of notes, so that means I'm probably not going to be that long. So congrats. Uh, for, Philippians 4, 6-7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything. Man, that verse right there in our, in our culture, like, we can't even handle that. Do not be anxious about anything. We have invented 9,000 ways to validate our anxiety. Um, and the scripture says, do not be anxious about anything. And let, let me just say, I'm all for counseling and for all of that. I have, you know, I've, I've worked with a counselor, but we need to be reminded that God does not want us to live perpetually in anxiety. So, anyway, side point. But do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, before I talk about thanksgiving, I want to talk about this, just a few key observations of the scripture. Because I, I, this is like one of the scriptures that I come back to more than, more than many scriptures. It's, it's just like a constant, it's one that I just constantly come back to and draw from this well. And, but I want to look at a few key things before I talk about thanksgiving. First of all, do not be anxious about anything. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that oftentimes in prayer, like the result, the result of prayer when it's done right, the result of prayer when it's done right is an increasing peace, not an increasing anxiety. Like the final result of prayer is that the peace of God, which transcends under all understanding, will enter and will guard your hearts and minds. And so the result of good prayer is a release of anxiety. Sometimes the way we pray, we don't release our anxiety, we expand our anxiety. It's like we pray frantically. And it's like, it's like in prayer that, and some of this I feel like I was taught, some not, but it's like in prayer sometimes, it's like we're trying to grab a hold. It's like we're trying to hold on to the monkey bars or grab a hold real hard. And yet, I think there's some usefulness to that way of thinking, but I think the greater emphasis is not grabbing a hold, but is letting go. Like, it's not, it's not trying to grip on to something that we need God to do. It's letting go and letting Him do it. And so when we have this mindset in prayer that we're trying to grab hold of that which we don't have, then it oftentimes does not release peace. It produces anxiety. So uh, a, another thing that is really uh, important in this text is, I remember I preached on this a couple years ago, and I remember this just just blowing my mind when I first saw it, is, let me read the, reread the verse so I can point it out. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's what happens, is that the peace of God comes... Once we present 
our requests to God. The peace of God does not come when we get breakthrough to the prayer we're praying. The peace of God comes when we present our requests to God. And I think a lot of times we're looking for a type of peace that comes from an answer he will give, but the peace doesn't come from the answer he will give. It comes from the presence of God and being, being willing to release our hearts and release our requests and release our anxieties to him. But if we come clinging on to every prayer request and not letting go of the request, then we don't, we don't receive this peace that guards our hearts and minds. We receive this sort of like frantic need for God to do the things that we think he should do. You know what I'm saying? Like, how many of you have ever been in this space? Like, I, I, I've cruised in this space for like a year where I'm like, God, you've you got to answer this prayer. You've got to do this thing. And yet, like, that, that grabbing hold is precisely missing of the primary promise of prayer, which is that as you present these requests to God, like, the peace of God will come. Not as he brings breakthrough, but as you present. So, um, okay. The beauty of this text is to remind us that his presence is what brings peace. Okay, so now I want to focus specifically on thanksgiving, thankfulness that's, that's in this text. I'll read it one more time. Because I think thankfulness is at the core of this. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. So here, here's the deal about the thanksgiving here. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. This isn't thanksgiving that a breakthrough has happened. It's thanksgiving for how God's already at work presenting to him the incomplete request that you're putting before him. Does this make sense? Like God, it's not, they're not, the, the, the encouragement here is not to thank God for the thing that's been given, but to live in thanksgiving as we're presenting the prayers to him. So with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay. I want to tell you the, the, the three things to me that make thankfulness, like, how would I say this? That would make thankfulness core attributes of what makes, of what makes that the posture. Man, I didn't really think this through. What, what, what are the three things that make thankfulness the posture that helps us sustain. We'll go with that. The points are succinct. The overview, not succinct. Um, I'm going to first land on this, is that thankfulness connects our hearts to what God has already done. Thankfulness connects our hearts to what God has already done. One of the things that we can do in prayer and, I, and I've, got, I've taken moments in my life where I've looked back and realized this. One of the things that we can do in prayer is that we can live 90% of our prayer life on things that God has yet to do. We can live 90% of our prayer life on the things He has not yet done. And it takes us into this reality where it robs us of peace more than almost anything. When your relationship with God 
is based solely on the not yet, the things that haven't happened, the things that you want to happen, then you aren't living in the presence of God. The presence of God is right here in the present moment. He's here. And when, we, when our prayer lives are focused on what He hasn't done, it robs us of contentment. What does 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says? It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It doesn't say, the, in this particular scripture, it doesn't say your massive, prayer, your massive prayer breakthrough is great gain. It says godliness with contentment is great gain. And what gratefulness, what a grateful heart says is, Lord, I recognize where you're at work right now. I recognize the beauty of what you're already doing. I recognize the, the, the great grace and mercy and blessing that flows over my life like a river. Like, like thankfulness doesn't put God out into the future. Thankfulness says, no, I'm already in the fullness of what he's doing. And I think far too often we live in the not we live in what's next. When we live in this kind of prayer, our relationship with God becomes at rest. It, it, it's, it's the peace of God comes in and it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When when we when we live focused on that which he hasn't done, uh, that there's like this sense of anxiousness, this sense of lack of content. And there, you, could, you could get that manic type spirituality. But when we live in thankfulness, we get this opportunity to live in great contentment with Him. I'm going to read that again. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, so the, fir the first reason for me that thankfulness is, is one of the keys to us living a sustaining life in God is that it connects us with God, what God is already doing, what He's already done. So many times you hear the writers of the epistles say, and we preach to you what we preached from the beginning, what has already been told to you. Okay. In Matthew 14... There's a story of Jesus taking um, this bread and this fish and multiplying it for the 5,000, right? And my brain is, is not working right now. Five loaves, two fish. Two, five, yes, five loaves, two fish. And he's, he takes this, and the, the whole passage is interesting because it says he looks upon them as like those who were sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. And, and they were hungry, and so he goes to them, and this is, there's this little boy. How many of you remember learning this in children's church growing up? This little boy comes and brings all that he have, which is the five loaves and two fish. And here's what Jesus says. He says, as he, as he took, the, took the food from the boy, in Matthew 14, 19, it says, And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the loaves and the two fish, five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. 
I was reading this scripture, and something jumped out at me that Jesus gave thanks for a provision that was incomplete. Jesus gave thanks for a provision that was incomplete to feed the 5,000. Like, he didn't just give thanks for the baskets and the 12 baskets full. He's sitting there with 5,000 people who got no food, giving thanks for five loaves and two fishes. Five loaves. He, the first thing he does before the miracle happens is he looks to his Father in heaven and, and gives thanks for what is present. I think the thing that thankfulness can do is that thankfulness can live in the incomplete and be content. To be in hope. To be in peace. Thankfulness can live in the places where the provision feels incomplete. It feels insufficient. It feels not like all that we imagined or all that we hoped. And it can still live in hope in the incomplete. Now, I'm going to tell you a really silly story. I, I, uh, I have this desire to, like, turn our backyard into this prayer labyrinth we, where we write different prayers for different parts. We were going to put a prayer for our garden, but our garden didn't really exist too long. And so I don't know what we do with that. But we, we kind of wrote a prayer for the treehouse, like, about f- having joy. And we, and we were going to write these different prayers. And so I kind of wanted, like, put some creativity into this I like I'm the guy who appreciates art but like I'm stick figures you know like that's my thing I don't really have that tactile motor skills and so I was trying to think of like how can I create my own little art prayer thing back here and the first thing I wanted was peace and so I I literally like brainstormed it for like months I was like all right what am I going to do and I, I didn't move on doing anything so one day, I walked outside, and I was just trying to get inspired, and I was like, forget this. I carried this old dead stump over to a part of the yard. I sat it on the ground, and I said, there's the stump of peace. I'm done. And, and so sometimes I'll walk by this stump that's just randomly placed in the back of the yard, and I'll just go, the stump of peace. And I'll stop, and I'll pray, oh, you know, God, you know, let us walk in your peace. And the reason to me that it was significant is because I gave up on trying to come up with the perfect idea and I just put something down. And I think in our lives so often we've envisioned these, um, these models of perfection and completeness in our lives that we won't live in gratitude until they're there. And God hasn't called us to live this way. God has called us like Jesus to stand there with five loaves and two fish and 5,000 men, not to mention the women and the children, and go, thank you, God, for this incomplete provision because with you, that which is incomplete can be whole. If you're waiting for the full completeness of all the things in your life to work out, like, The fullness of God is now. And if we can live in gratitude, we will experience that even in the incompleteness. Amen? You know, it's it's literally like when we read the Scripture and it says, present these requests to God with thanksgiving, and 
the peace of God will enter and guard your hearts and minds. It's that letting go of the breakthroughs that we're praying for, letting them go to God, is it's the very act that protects our heart. When we cling to the breakthrough, when we can cling to the vision of completeness that we have and we hold on to it tightly, then we, we are, we're taking ourselves out of that place where he protects our hearts and minds. But when we let go of it and we give it into his hands, we let go of it and we step into this incomplete moment or what we feel is incomplete, then it, the peace of God comes and guards our hearts and minds. All right. Last thing that I wanted to point out about on thankfulness. So the first thing is, um, let me read the point to you, is that thankfulness connects our hearts to what God has already done, what he's doing. Thankfulness, the second point, is lives in full hope even in the incomplete. The last thing that faithfulness does to sustain us is that thankfulness destroys unhealthy spiritual entitlement. Thankfulness destroys unhealthy spiritual entitlement. I mean, you know that there are some things that we are entitled to as being sons and daughters of God. There's some thing, there's there's mercy and grace and presence and His coming help to us in time of need. There's a lot of things that that God has said by His own words that we're entitled to as His children. But there is an unhealthy entitlement that we often have. And a couple months ago. I was talking to the Lord, and I heard the Lord say, Jordan, I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you anything. And I think sometimes I, it's like I'm counting, I'm, you, know, you know, like Revelation, the picture of the bowls that all the prayers have gone into. It's like I got my own bowl over here. I'm like, look how many prayers I put into the bowl, God. Like, you owe me something. And the Lord said, Jordan, I do not owe you anything. And I think sometimes when we don't live in gratitude, we add up all the spiritual good things we've done, and we think to ourselves, God owes me something today. I've, I've persevered long enough. I've been faithful long enough. And yet, I, what, what I, I really believe that God has given us everything we need to live life in His fullness. What we do oftentimes is we hold God hostage with our prayers. We're like, God, I've prayed this prayer for 900 years. I'm getting almost Methuselah age here. I've prayed this prayer for 900 years. You must answer it by now. God does not owe us anything. And thankfulness can rid us of that entitlement. And so I just want to ask you to take a moment. We're going to close our eyes. We've got no fancy closing for you. And I just, want to, I just want us to take a moment and ask God, are we living a life of gratefulness? Are we living a life of thankfulness?